Hi, and welcome back to the Laudable Pursuit Podcast, contemplative and transformative education for those seeking Masonic light. I'm Nate Warren. I'm Jason Marshall. And I'm Matt Anthony. The last time we talked, we talked about wisdom and that it dwells in contemplation. We spoke about what that is and a little bit of different ways to approach it. But tonight I want to shift gears just a little and talk about meditation. So what is meditation? I would say it'd be focused contemplation, which is basically setting aside a period of time or undertaking a practice to undertake a contemplative. As we were talking about in the previous episode, you know, you have different forms of contemplative practice. Well, meditation is one of those. And there's all kinds of different sorts of meditations. You have simple breath meditations. You have... Um, guided meditations, uh, what's called discursive meditations, where you focus on a passage or a piece of poetry or a piece of Masonic ritual and focus on that, um, and where you just have simple mindfulness meditation. But what is actually happening in meditation? What's the mechanism? Well, that's kind of what I meant by focused contemplation, because during contemplative practice, you're going within yourself uh, to gain a greater understanding of your own self and psyche, uh, meditation is more of a formalized practice. So instead of you know sitting, you know smoking a cigar, or having a nice scotch, and contemplating life, you're doing it during meditation. Um, you know, Young, whenever he was writing his Red Book, he undertook basically what's kind of a modified uh, form of of mindfulness meditation, where you try to slow your mind. Uh, kind of reach what some people call like a zero state and whenever that occurs that allows you to then start focusing more on your inner journey and that's when you start maybe uh, encountering the various archetypal figures within the psyche so so there's a journey right i mean you're you're going somewhere i mean you're not going anywhere really but in, in your mind you're you're encountering something you're going somewhere you're you're doing something yeah, I mean, it, it, like I said, it depends on what style. I mean, there's different styles for different things. Um, you know, simple breath meditation is used a lot for people that are stressed or just need to kind of center themselves. And that can be as simple as sitting still, breathing normally, counting, you know, seven sets of breaths, five sets of breaths, ten sets of breaths for a predetermined period of time. And that would just be more of a calming meditation. And you know, I use that a lot during my lunch periods or maybe when I first get to the office, pour a cup of coffee, take about five minutes and just focus on my breath. And then that kind of gets you down into a, a um, more relaxed, calm state of mind. And then once you reach that state, then you can undertake other things. Um, one of the things for the Academy of Reflection uh, in Guthrie has the discursive meditation where you pick a officer position or a just a piece of ritual and you just repeat that to yourself like a mantra and as you repeat as you keep on repeating that to yourself you just kind of focus on what comes up to mind and what fades away so you know if you want to pick maybe like a working tool lecture such as like the trowel for the master mason degree so you focus on the trowel for the master mason degree and spreading the uh, cement of brotherly love and so you just keep repeating that line to yourself over 
and over and over again and see what comes up. I know, you know, whenever I, and when I focus on that, it depends, it's changed over the years. So when I was master, I would focus on that line and I would think about different things for the lodge, um, different brothers in the lodge, things that needed to happen. You know, now when I think about it, uh, you know, it's not necessarily lodge specific, but I might think of different brothers and maybe brothers that are, you know, in need or just in my thoughts and prayers. So that, that's just different ways that you can use meditation or at least discursive meditation. So what do you use meditation for? How do you use it? I think it depends on the individual and what you're actually wanting to get out of the meditation. I think most people, whenever they think of meditation, they think of a way to distress and relax. And that's one of the best things to use, but you can also use it for other, other things. You can use it on your path. You can use it for, um, you can do what Jason said, which explore different aspects of masonry. Yeah. So it just, it depends on what you're wanting out of it. Okay. So what do you want? Out it's of a, it? what do I want personally? Sometimes I'm, what I want to do is I want to explore different ways that we use meditation um, because it's not just one thing. It's, it's a million things. It can be a million things with a million useful purposes. For me personally, what I use it mostly for is a way to shut down all of the, the fridge buzz, the background noise, the static in my mind. Once everything else falls off and I'm left with nothing and nothing isn't necessarily the goal, but it's at that point when things become clear and I'm able to really uh, delve deep into certain things. Yeah. Yeah. I look at it like, um, like you have to, well, you have to, for lack of a, a better word, leave this world behind because what I think of it is, is like navigating the mystic, like you're, you're navigating in this other area. And even though it's within yourself, it's actually outside yourself. If that makes sense, that maybe we're chasing down, some of our persona or we're chasing down the divine or we're just um, trying to drop off some of the things that aren't really necessary. Well, and I agree with that because, you know, according to Jung, we have two parts of the unconscious. You have the personal unconscious and the collective unconscious. And while, you know, you can sit around and, think about your past or, you know, what's on your mind and access your personal unconscious, you can't access the collective unconscious that way. So in a way, meditation or contemplative practices in general are the only way that you can kind of reach deeper within yourself and and reach the various archetypes and parts of your unconscious self. You know, young when he was writing the red book and he started undertaking some of these practices, he talked about, you know, first encountering the, you know, persona. And that's something that we've talked about before on the podcast, which is, you know, the mask that you wear with yourself. So you encounter that and you start working with that on, you know, what is the persona? What is my true nature and self? And and, and once you start uncovering these things, you know, you, you can start mulling those around your head and not necessarily just when you're meditating. So you might encounter something in meditation and then you take a break. And, you know, for maybe the next two or three days, I might just kind of keep thinking about this topic over and over and over again. But had I not kind of went within for meditation, I would have never have encountered that to begin with. 
And what's cool about meditation is a lot of times you're not even really going in looking for a certain topic or a certain thing that you're needing to deal with. And what's great is whenever you finally hit that state where the background noise falls off because you've been focusing on your breath, things will come to the surface that you didn't realize you even needed to look at. Yeah, so there's there's um, well, there's things there, right? And uh, just because you're meditating, they don't necessarily manifest on that journey. They're already there. You just you have to find them. And um, I mean, how awesome is it if you can if you can come across those things? Because obviously, you're not going to do it consciously at work or or anything like that. There's a place you have to go where those things reside. And there's definitely a time for for meditations where you're wanting to focus on a particular thing, but it's also equally important to have important to have meditations where you are letting go, you're just focusing on your breath because it, it's at those times that these other things come up. Yeah, and and it's equally valid. I mean, there's like I said earlier, there's there's a million reasons to use meditation. Um, I mean, I use it in, in one aspect just to try to calm myself enough that I can go to sleep. But then there's a whole another world of meditation where you're encountering things and uh, uncovering truths and things like that. Those two totally separate avenues. But I think either way, no matter which, which form of meditation you do, you always end up becoming a better observer of yourself, being able to step back, not just in your meditations, but in life. And that's the most beneficial part of, of meditation, at least for me, is that it's easier to slip into the observer state. You're less reactionary and you're able to step back from certain situations and look and, and step back and observe them impartially rather than just being reactionary. Perfect. Yeah. I was just about to ask, why is it important? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's one of the huge benefits of mindfulness meditation is just like you were saying, cutting out the refrigerator buzz. I mean, I, th- I think sometimes we get used to the refrigerator buzz and, you know, in Buddhism, they call it the monkey mind where you're just kind of jumping from tree to tree from thought to thought and you get used to it and it almost becomes, well, you think it's comfortable, but it wears you out. I mean, <laughs> mentally and physically it will wear you out. And with mindfulness meditation is where you just simply focus on, what you're doing right now. So if you're if you're taking a shower, you just focus on taking a shower. I mean, what what's the sensations of the water, the soap, the steam, the whole nine yards. You know, if you're drinking your morning cup of coffee at the table, you know, just sitting at the table. What what does the air smell like? What does the coffee smell like? Is the mug warm in your hand? The feeling of gravity pulling you down into your seat. All that stuff are things that you don't ever even think about really, but they're happening all the time. But by focusing on those, it shuts down the refrigerator buzz, the monkey mind that's going on in the background. And after you can calm down, then you can start getting into the more contemplative states. I mean, there's no way like for myself that I could ever work, you know, all day and then fight traffic on the way home and then just sit down and, you know, read read or uh, write masonic stuff there's just no way you have to calm yourself down and get yourself out of the normal everyday buzz and what's great is even beyond those contemplative aspects you're just talking about going
going back to what you're saying about mindfulness and even things like drinking coffee, whenever you put down your phone to not look at Facebook and you're just thinking, I'm drinking coffee, this is what coffee tastes like, <laughs> this coffee's warm, you're being mindful of the experience of drinking coffee, you'll be amazed at how much more pleasure you get out of that action, whatever it is, being take a shower, like you said, or drinking coffee. Shutting down the chatter and just focusing on whatever it is you're doing you'll find pleasure in things you never thought that there was pleasure in. Yeah, and I was listening to a story on NPR, and they were talking about flow states. And I think that's that's part of it, where when they put people in an MRI machine and they have them focus, I don't remember what show it was or what study it was, but they had people focus on one thing. And they would watch different areas in their brain, and then they'd have them, you know, do something creative, you know, recite, poetry or something like that and whenever they whenever they just went in and said okay you know read this get an MRI machine and repeat it and they couldn't do it but when they get an MRI machine and have you know uh, incense or some music or something to where they could first focus their mind on then they could remember the poetry or whatever uh, much easier because it helped calm their mind and get them in that flow state and I think most people have had that experience where if you're an artist or you have some kind of hobby, when you get in that zone is when, you know, the creative creative juices start flowing and you're not worrying about what happened at work or what's going on in your family life. You're just in the zone and being creative. What's really interesting what you just said, it just something that popped in my head is talking about how whenever you introduce those aspects like incense or anything else like that that'll that'll help your brain realize, hey, this is there's something different going on here. I need to focus on this. Within masonry, I think we often forget the point of ritual, even things like opening and closing. We we can become so mundane sometimes that we think, oh, this is just something we do, but we forget that whenever you're mindful and you're focusing on things like opening or closing lodge you're putting yourself in a new state. You're saying, all right, this time and this, this situation, this is different. You know, this is set aside for, uh, this other experience. Yeah. And it's like, you know, like you said earlier, you get into this observer state and I'm kind of starting to see a theme in what we've been talking about where whatever activity you're doing, you are able to observe it objectively. Um, almost like from the outside, And I've heard people talk like that when they talk about getting in the zone. It's like I wasn't even doing it. It's like I was watching myself doing it, right? And so there's something to that, I think. The observation of yourself uh, impartially, as um, as if you weren't yourself, but maybe as if you were or from the viewpoint of something more pure than yourself. I always think it's interesting whenever you start talking about uh, being an observer or myself or I. And, and it's interesting because um, there's, some, I don't remember if it was Rumi or another poet who said, uh, you know, discover who is speaking and change everything because you always say me, myself, I, you, but, you know, that kind of goes with the Jungian concept of the twin personality centers where you have the ego and then you have the self, where the self is the, the, to, the totality of the, uh, the unconscious and conscious self. And ego is the center of just your conscious self. 
So, and he actually represented that by a point within the circle where the circle is the self so that encompasses everything. Ego is just your conscious self. And, you know, according to Jung, we're all born with a sense of self. And then as we get older, we start moving away or closing in from that broad circle down into that fine point of the ego. And so the whole point of contemplative practice is to start redeveloping the self and moving away from ego consciousness. So, and that's kind of the, we start doing away with the I and the you (laughs) and, you know, Jung said that, uh, the self is basically the God within and that's what you're looking for. Yeah. That, that just, that brings to mind this quote that I've been just stuck on for the last month or two now in Watts, uh, and he says, and you see, if you know that the I, in the sense of the person, the front, the ego, it doesn't really exist, then it won't go to your head too badly if you wake up and discover that you're God. <laughs> and then Matt scoffs. <laughs> I didn't scoff, I laughed. <laughs> well, and I think that's the whole point of it, is when you start undertaking these practices, you do start realizing you know, your inner divinity, if you will. And, you know, in Jungian psychology, that's a self and, you know, mystical stuff. Um, you know, the Gnostic Christians, that's the Gnosis, um, in Hinduism, that's reaching, you know, moksha. And, uh, but that's what it is. You, you start uncovering the different states and your true inner being. I mean, in the Scottish rites, uh, on the 32nd degree, it's explicitly said that we have the divine spark within us. And that's what we're uncovering. And, you know, in meditation, there's these various practices. And in Freemasonry, I mean, we learn as an inner apprentice that we're supposed to be working on our inner Ashler. Well, that's what it is. I mean, our divine essence within ourselves is what we're uncovering through the process of Freemasonry. And so, you know, within Freemasonry, we have these tools that point to contemplative practices, to meditation, and that's the essence of what we're trying to uncover, is the cubicle stone within. Yeah, and the Ashur is a perfect example. The divine, it, it's not just in you, it, it is you, right? And you got to break off those rough corners to get rid of yourself, to not necessarily... Um, discover the divine within you but expose it yeah and even in alchemy i mean the whole point of alchemy was uncovering the philosopher's stone and which is you know the salt or the essence of a uh, material and that wasn't necessarily creating this new material that was just through the various processes of um, distillation and fermentation and Uncovering, actually, yeah, basically uncovering that, not necessarily creating it anew. It was there all the time. It just needed to be perfected. So we've talked about a couple of different types of meditation and briefly touched on the goal of meditation. But there are some mechanics involved. There are some things, like you talked about with the MRIs, some facilitators, some things to help bridge the gap, um, so like incense, music those kinds of things. Why do you think something as trivial or not as incense would be so key? 
Well, I think one of the things that Matt said, it sort of sends a mental signal that this is something different, something out of the ordinary, that's a special time. Um, and also, there's been quite a few studies that show that incense is you know, psychoactive as well. Um, frankincense, for example, has been proven to calm stress and to also elevate um, sensory perceptions. So that would allow you, if you're going to try to go within, if it has a calming effect and helps you focus, you know, like on a mindfulness practice, I mean, incense, frankincense would be perfect because the very substance itself helps calm you and raise your sensory perceptions. Um, and that's why, you know, incense has been used by various traditions. And that's, you know, whether it's an Eastern tradition or, you know, sage for the Native Americans for cleansing properties. Um, but there's there's something more to it, right? It's not just psychoactive. I mean, these people, some people, I believe, that sage actually can cleanse a space, not just a, a psycho connection there. Well, yeah, I mean, there's beliefs that it has spiritual properties that, you know, sage for, for cleansing, uh, you know, frankincense and myrrh for various types of blessings. So, yeah, there's a spiritual tradition on that as well. So it's important then to align your senses or turn some down and so that you can turn others up. Um, yeah. A, a good, really good way and a, a really powerful meditation tool I found for myself or sensory deprivation tanks or float tanks, because we all know we're bombarded by sensory input every day, every minute of the day and float tanks or sensory deprivation tanks Float tanks, kind of a better word, because it doesn't freak people out as much. Uh, it's the best way to shut down all outside sensory input, to where all you're left with is just your your thoughts. You have no light. You have no sound. The only sound you have is the sound of your heartbeat. So I think that's a really powerful tool for people, especially if they have a hard time meditating to begin with because of outside distractions. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people talk about those. I know you're big into it. Um, Joe Rogan talks about it quite a bit. There's one here in Oklahoma City. I haven't tried it yet. I need to. That's great. It sounds pretty cool. For people that don't know, they're they're these tanks. They're filled with about 10 inches of water, and that water has around 800 pounds of Epsom salt, so you're completely buoyant in it. There's no chance of of sinking, and the air in the water in the tank is, is heated to 93 degrees, the same temperature as your skin. So when you're in the tank, not having light or sound, and the water being the same temperature as your skin, like I said, you've already lost all outside sensory input, but you also lose all sense of your body. So it's a great way to tackle that background noise that you have in your head without the external stimulus. And can you find yourself achieving that state a lot quicker that way? In some ways, your first couple of floats, not necessarily because your body is actually screaming for sensory input. We're yeah. so used to that input that when it's stripped away, your brain kind of flips out a little bit. Sure. But once you get used to it, I would say, especially most people on their first float, about 40 minutes in, uh, they're finally able to let go. And at that point, it's it's the easiest, for me at least, the easiest way to meditate. Yeah, I actually did it for the first time last year for my birthday. <laughs> I fi- I figure it was good on my uh, for my birthday to kind of go back into the womb, so to speak. 
Um, and really that's kind of what it's like. It's, you know, the, as you were saying, the air and the water is the same temperature as your skin. So you, you're floating and you can't tell where, you know, the air is, where the water is. And it was a very odd sensation to sit there and I couldn't really tell if my hand was under the water, out of the water, <laughs> floating on the water. And, but it was very powerful and it was interesting for me because I've probably been doing various forms of meditation for a decade. And I went in with that mindset that I was going to have, you know, a meditative, you know, experience. I mean, that was my goal. And it was very odd because when I first started, I had a uh, meditation on um, because they have speakers inside if you want to listen to that stuff. And I have a really great um, uh, soundtrack called the Rumi Symphony where it has different uh, Rumi poetry uh, placed over music. And it's great. And so I, I started playing that. And it was so weird and so distracting that I had to turn it off about five minutes in. And so I was laying in the dark, complete dark, totally silent. And so I said, well, I'll start focusing on my breath. But even just focusing on my breath seems so loud because you're in this enclosed tank with earplugs in, floating in water. And so that's kind of when I started realizing that, you know, in the ordinary world, things like focusing on your breath or a guided meditation is extremely helpful, but that's because it helps kind of drown out the refrigerator buzz. But if the refrigerator buzz isn't there to begin with, and you're in a totally silent, totally enclosed space, that's actually a distraction. So it kind of had a, a weird metaphysical <laughs> spin to, to it for me. But uh, it was a very powerful experience because, as, you know, once you strip away sight, sound, and feeling, you know, the only thing that's really left is your own psyche. Yeah, You're, that's you. Yeah, you. That's it. And so it was a very, very powerful f- experience for me. I've only done it once. I probably should go back. My birthday's next month. If anybody wants to send me a gift card. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Nobody. I forbid anyone from sending him a gift card. Yeah, I, I strongly recommend it as well. I've floated, <laughs> ten, I've floated 10 times myself, and it's... Each time I go in, I'm able to go deeper and deeper, and you're able to get to that state a lot faster. Okay, so let's talk about the state. You uh, you encounter yourself, your real self, your stripped-down self, right? And then what? Well, and then it's, it's, it's kind of what I was saying about earlier. You go into the tank maybe with some preconceived notions about what you're going to confront and what you want to work through, but once you're able to shut off that background noise and you go down to nothing and you go down to... I don't even want to say your true self, but you just, when everything else shuts off, the things that need to come to the surface come to the surface. And can you address them easily there? Do you address them later? Does it stick with you? You know, it's a very impressionable, raw state. A little of both. I mean, it, that's the perfect time to deal with them because you don't have those outside distractions. They're brought up to your attention and you have time to actually deal with them without having to worry about your phone or or any outside commitment, because when you're in that tank, you're in that tank until your time is up. So it's the perfect time to deal with it. But having that that moment of true clarity to deal with those situations in the tank gives you new perspective to deal with them once you're out of the tank. Yeah, and you know, Matt, you were talking about you know reaching that state. 
you know, it's it's kind of a dream state almost. I mean, I I think some people discount, you know, dreams and but really meditation when you start encountering the various portions of the psyche and archetypes, that's very much like a dream state. And you know, a dream you obviously wake up from, same thing as meditation. So when you're in that tank and you start kind of encountering some of these themes and just yourself, that's it's a really great opportunity because obviously you can remember it better than dreams, or at least most people. I'm terrible at remembering dreams, but the only time I can remember a dream is when one of my kids, you know, wakes me up at 4:30 in the morning when I'm <laughs> in the midst of it. But um, yeah, I the float tank is a is a wonderful tool. So if anybody has one near you, I would definitely recommend trying that one out. Powerful float tanks. Power float tanks. Well, and, and you know, one thing that you were talking about, Matt, was, you know, encountering your true self or, you know, you don't want to call it that, but your your base essence, I guess. And kind of going back to the Ashler, that's always within. And so, in a way, meditation, float tanks, or even, even entheogens, that kind of strips away the various, you know, parts that cover that up. And, you know, one of the things, you know, things like mushrooms or ayahuasca, what it really does is shut down the various portions of your brain that prevent you from accessing that stuff, the deeper levels and deeper, deeper states of consciousness. You're right. That's the actual mechanism of action with things like psilocybin and and even uh, ayahuasca that it's not actually adding anything to your brain. What it's doing is shutting down uh, some of the sensory filters in your brain. To basically allow input that's normally shut out to come up to the surface? Well, you know, going back to meditation, you know, I, I've had very, very profound meditations by, you know, where I feel like I've kind of crossed through that veil, you know, into the spiritual realm just on my own. And a lot of that is shutting off the monkey mind, shutting off the refrigerator buzz, and just going within and focusing on you know, the divine essence. And those have been very, very brief glimpses into it. Kind of like, you know, you poke your finger through the veil and you have a profound experience and they've been life changing, but you know, they last, maybe I was, had a hand through the veil for three minutes and very, very profound. But you know, with the psychedelics, uh, you know, the research shows that when it starts shutting down those portions of your brain to allow you to reach those states, you reach those states for a very, for an extended period of time. And things like, uh, you know, DMT that, that can l- allow you to reach those deeper states of consciousness because it shuts down some of the refrigerator buzz and kind of pushes you through that veil. There's a, a thing here, though, in what we're talking about. And and I don't know where I stand on it. I really don't. Where there's basically two schools here of thought where some people would say that, like in the meditation example where you're piercing through the veil and you're, you're having this experience, that it's possible you're actually having this experience. And then some people would say with these um, entheogens or DMT that it's a chemical experience. And some people would say one is real and mystical and magical and it's spiritual and one is a chemical. But 
maybe they're the same thing and I'm okay with that example too. Honestly, for me personally, it doesn't matter which it is. The result's the same either way. As above, so below. There's a possibility that what is manifested in the spiritual world can be replicated in the chemical world inside your brain. Right. If it still has the same long-lasting impact on your life for the better, it doesn't matter if you're actually blasting off to some bardo or you're just introducing some chemicals in your brain to make you think you have. Either way, the result's the same. Well, and I think it's beyond question that there's a lot of religious traditions and that use entheogens too. So I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I mean, I, I've never done a psychedelic in my life, but I just know from my personal meditation experiences that I've had some of those brief glimpses across the veil when I've read or talked with somebody who has had some psychedelic experiences, they're very, very close to one another. And again, as we were saying, you know, with meditation, you're shutting off the refrigerator buzz and focusing, you know, within to kind of cross into the astral world, the spiritual plane, and really on the entheogens that are shutting off the portions of your brain or mind are allowing you to do the same thing. Which is why, you know, Native Americans have used peyote, mushrooms, you know, you have ayahuasca in South America. Uh, there's also quite a bit of research that, you know, even acacia root was used in the Middle East. Acacia, you say? Yes. Well, and there's, you know, even uh, Danny Newman had an interesting paper that was, you know, uh, I can't remember if it was DMT, an early Masonic ritual, I think is what it was called. Um I don't know if I agree with all necessarily the premises, but there's some interesting stuff there, certainly. Like what? Like I said, I I, th- I think it's without question that various um, mystery traditions and religions and spiritual practices have used entheogens. So I don't think it's outside of the realm of possibility that some of the various you know mystery traditions that Freemasonry borrowed from didn't use some sort of entheogen. Um, I don't necessarily think that that's the complete reason. I think you have to look at where, you know, some of the uh, different rituals came from. I think in that paper, he was really focusing on uh, Count Cagliostro. I can't remember how you say his name, but uh, you know, he was, he was basically (laughs) fairly widely discredited within the uh, Masonic realm, but his ritual probably did have a lot to do with the preparation of ayahuasca root. So people for as long as we've known about people and their cultures have had rituals, practices, facilitators, all of this to approach the divine or to approach the divine within themselves, altered states of consciousness, et cetera, et cetera. Would you say that's because we are, for lack of a better word, programmed to seek the creator? Is it, I like to think of it like this, and I know I just, it's rude to answer my own question, but let me throw this out before I forget it. I think that there is a, a divinity in everything, and I mean everything. And I think that it seeks itself like it has its own gravity and the more you become aware of that in yourself the more you're going to chase it 
that's I think that's a big reason that we are drawn so closely to each other when we go to retreats or lodge or anything like that is because we're all seeking that and in those instances we're a little more open and a little more vulnerable and I think that we can see that in each other and that creates a gravity and a bond between us yeah I mean I do I think I think there's an instinctual need to not only discover our own divinity but the divinity that surrounds each of us uh you know that's the story of the fall that is in pretty much every religious tradition where you have a state of unity there's a fall and then there's the path of return to return back to the garden of eden to turn back to return back to a state of oneness and unity between yourself and the creator and you know an ultimate goal uh, with yourself and the rest of humanity which i mean i mean that's kind of masonry in a nutshell you know we the working tools from the inner apprentice degree and fellow craft degree you know are all about working on your ashlar and, and building your own spiritual temple but when you look at you know when you get to the trowel it's spreading the cement of brotherly love so you're going from working on your own individual ashlar to building the larger house of the fraternity or the larger house of mankind yeah i mean that and it just fits it's pretty it's pretty simple you know the uh, it takes the perfect dashboards it takes the divine within yourself and you stack those up and you build the house i mean it's, it's pretty simple you think it's simple to build oh yeah <laughs> spiritual <built> house <laughs> yeah i built one i already built one Mine's a lean-to. Spiritual shanty. <laughs> spiritual shanty town. <laughs> I'm the mayor of spiritual shanty town. Deadwood. So tell me about your experiences. Well, I mean, I'll just go into some of them. Probably one of the most you know profound meditations I've ever had was completely impromptu and probably was a really stressful and low time in my life. Um, I had taken the bar exam and uh, basically, once you take the bar exam, you get to wait about three months while they grade the bar exam. So you've graduated from law school. You've got large six-figure student loan debts. I had a kid. Um, I was working at the time, and I had no idea if I was going to pa- if I had passed um, at all. And I can remember that I was at home and I was in the backyard, and I had recently built a koi pond so i was back there uh just smoking a cigar and drinking some bourbon and i had you know this strong sensation meditate and it was all it was honestly almost an audible demand from something that said meditate no i <laughs> don't want to meditate not in the mood you know had a, had a had a really bad day at work and again just as far as a mental space wasn't good <laughs> and um, again it was almost another demand of meditate and so I just kind of put my cigar down and closed my eyes and it was just literally like somebody had kicked me off a cliff and you know we talked we've talked about kind of going, doing away with the refrigerator buzz and the monkey mind but I mean it was literally like jumping off of a cliff and all the different layers of what me air quotes was disappeared. I mean, instantly, you know, I was 
one with everything. I was one with, you know, the trees, the grass, the air, the bird in the tree. And it was just such an intense experience. And, and it only probably, you know, three or four minutes at the most until I came back out of it. But uh, it was a very profound experience where who I thought I was this separate individual being all of a sudden was interconnected with everything and everyone. And you know, that was very similar to, you know, what you, what you hear about in, you know, the Hindu tradition of once you break, you know, the cycle of suffering, samsara and reach, you know, moksha enlightenment, it was something like that where you just, Instantly, you become, instead of a singular point, you expand into all-encompassing oneness. I mean, I, I don't really know how to put it without sounding really, really new age, but it is a very profound experience. And again, that was something that, I mean, I get, at that point, I'd probably been meditating for five years, never had anything that strong, but it wasn't even a intentional practice at that point I mean it wasn't like I went back to the backyard and said okay I'm going to light some incense I'm going to ring my singing bowl three times and I'm going to meditate I mean it was a very very impromptu experience but perhaps some of the you know practices I had done before that kind of laid those tracks for me yeah there's a couple of things there you know you talk about the oneness I mean that's just like consciousness right yeah I mean you're, you're conscious of what you are and aren't. And another thing is that elation, that joy. Um, it, it was so impactful. Like you've been waiting for that ultimate experience, but that's what we're supposed to be. I think that awareness or interconnectedness with, I don't know what this world, the divine in this world, you know, or out of this world, but it's it's here, it's the present. And for a little bit, you were able to sample that without all of the normal distraction that we pile on ourselves. But I think that, that is actually what we were intended to be. Yeah, I, I agree that that's you know, the ultimate goal and state. But at least that experience and two more that I've had since... I don't know if you could stay in that state, fully stay in that state and be in this world because well, who wants to do that? What be in this world? Yeah. I mean, well, you, you are until you die. <laughs> well, it's like a lot of, a lot of teachers say it's not just with meditation, but also with psychedelics. Like once you get that fireworks experience and you, once you've gotten the message, hang up. The goal isn't the fireworks necessarily. The goal is the work itself. Yeah, and I think most people, they, they try to focus on that firework experience. And I know for me, you know, after I had that initial experience, I guess that had been 2010, you know, I, for the next week or two, I it's very hard to explain, but it was almost like an energetic buzz. that I literally felt just energy. I felt tingly. You know, and, you know, I'd pet my dog and feel like there was some kind of weird energy transference. I know this sounds completely crazy, but that's true. And then slowly it kind of starts fading away. And I don't know if 
and at least you know operate in the material plane that we're at, you could do that all the time. I, I mean, I, I think obviously it's it's great to experience it. Maybe that's the ultimate experience when we die. So maybe our life is setting those railroad, railroad tracks into motion so that that's the experience after we die. I don't know. I mean, I really don't. But the, the key is to not get too hung up on those because once you have that experience, it's hard not to because you expect every time you go back in and you meditate, you think you're going to get that experience. And whenever you don't, you think, oh, what what have I done wrong? You know, did I not concentrate hard enough? Was I not sitting properly? Was I not breathing properly? And it's too easy to get hung up on that. And uh, like I was saying earlier, you, you can't focus on that. I didn't learn that myself. It was, uh, it was Brother Chuck Dunning. So that took me one time, you know, you can't get too hung up on those firework experiences. It's, those are extremely beneficial and you'll, you'll take away something very profound for your life, but just doing the work, sitting, taking the time to sit and meditate. That's the thing itself that the work itself is what's important. Well, and I agree. I, I think, you know, that, that experience was in 2010 and I don't think I had another really deep experience for another two or three years after that. And I think you're right. I think after that, every you know, every time I sat down, I was like, okay, here we go, baby. You know, it's going to happen again, you know. And then, uh, okay, it was good. I was relaxed, you know. I, I kind of dug up some stuff that I dealt with, but I, I didn't pierce that bell. Okay, that was a failure. So, okay, I need to buy the same cigar, <laughs> the, the, the same bourbon, yeah. and I'm going to go out. At the koi pond at four thirty in the afternoon, and we're going to do this again. And it, you know, and it happened again for like two or three years. In fact, you know, honestly, the other two experiences I've had have all been very ad hoc. I mean, extremely. You know, the other one, I was literally walking in the woods, and again had that almost, almost a verbal command to meditate, and so. This time I listened and just, you know, sat down and boop, there you go. I mean, barely closed my eyes and I got, you know, kicked off a cliff. But then again, it didn't happen again for a year. So now I think I've come to that place, like you were saying, where when the fireworks happen, that's great. Get the most out of it, but don't necessarily expect that every single time because then you're chasing the experience. You're, You're chasing something instead of letting your mind go you're going in with some kind of preconceived notion and that's what you're going after. So talking about this experience, the, uh, the ride, the fireworks, etc. Um, it reminds me of this passage that I actually just heard this weekend. I'd never heard it before, but man, it blew me away. Let me read it to you. The Holy One came upon me and I beheld a white swan floating in the blue. Between its wings I set, and the eons fled away. Then the swan flew and dived and soared, yet no whither we went. A little crazy boy that rode with me spake unto the swan and said, Who art thou that dost float and fly and dive and soar in the inane? Behold, these many eons have passed. Whence camest thou? Whither wilt thou go? And laughing, I chide him, saying, No whence, no whither. The swan, being silent, he answered, Then, if with no goal, 
why this eternal journey? And I laid my head against the head of the swan and laughed, saying, Is there not joy ineffable in this aimless winging? Is there not weariness and impatience? For who would attain to some goal? And the swan was ever silent, but we floated in the infinite abyss. Joy, joy, white swan, bear thou ever me up between thy wings. When Jason was talking about mindfulness earlier, and we were saying that even the most mindless, seemingly mindless and, and mundane things, there can be a lot of bliss found in them whenever you actually put mindfulness into them. Stop thinking of them as mindless, but be mindful while you're doing those things, and you'll find great joy in even the simplest of things. You really do start to realize how good it is just to be anything at all, how good it is just to be yeah, and I, I like that, that in that passage, the crazy little boy, that's, you know, the guy that's going for the ride, asking all these questions that don't matter and detracting from what's actually happening. It's, it's getting caught up in the details instead of just going with it. I think it, I don't think it's necessarily that those questions don't matter. I think it's still important to ask those questions because it's in asking those questions that we can get to the point where we realize that there is meaning in those things. If that makes any sense at all. It, was, it doesn't matter because everybody's like, what are they talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, if you look at, okay, big picture, you know, if there is a creator and, you know, this universe or realm of reality that we reside in is part of that creation, we're surrounded by it. And so a lot of times as individuals, we build up our own walls and barriers to that. And so instead of, you know, fully floating in the ocean of consciousness, we build ships to separate us from it. We're still in it, but we want to think we're masters of it and take it on on our own terms. But through meditation or practices or that, that Crowley quote, sometimes you got to get just into it and, not worry about the details and fully experience it. And, you know, I even, it's interesting because, you know, I, I've, I, for, a, I guess, I don't know. I, I guess it's interesting because there's times that, you know, I, I've seen Masonic ritual hundreds and hundreds of times. And a couple months ago, uh, when we had the midnight master Mason degree for Veritas, you know, there wasn't anything all that different other than being at midnight. Uh, you know, we're a traditional observance lodge, so it was candlelit with suits. But just kind of relaxing into the experience and just watching the degree and fully just watching the degree was a really profound experience for me. And I think maybe it was different because, you know, this year I'm the secretary. So for the first time in seven years, I'm not an officer in the degree but just be able to just watch it was interesting and just fully kind of experience it in a different way without having some kind of preconceived notions or worries in my head was really profound. And just watching, you know, the degree unfold was an interesting experience for me. Yeah. But even, even there though, you had, you know, you had facilitators, you had mechanisms in place. It was at midnight 
pretty strange. So everybody's there intent on their purpose. Um, you know, the, the world is slower and less busy at midnight. So it's, you know, there's a lot of things that play there. Well, yeah. I mean, you have the whole Greg Orr of everybody was there by new is kind of a special experience. Nobody that I know of could remember when the last time there was a, if ever was a midnight master Mason degree in Oklahoma. But, you know, maybe that's kind of the, one of the beautiful things about Freemasonry is that it has the mechanism for that sort of thing. I mean, a lot of times we focus on a candidate or individual brother's journey through, you know, initiation as an apprentice, being passed to fellow craft and raised as the master Mason degree. But in reality, the lodge itself is taking part in that process and the individual members, it can facilitate stuff within them as well. If you'll excuse me to, to get really woo-woo. When Jason was saying that, something just dawned on me. We are talking about facilitators for deepening your experience in these things. What greater facilitator for improving yourself than this material existence? Yeah. I mean, and I've heard it several times that, you know, material existence or this life, you know, provides the necessary abrasive for your Ashler. That, you know... <laughs> the older I get, I always say the less I like people and <laughs> the more people annoy me and that it might be really nice to get a cabin in Colorado and just have, you know, with good Wi-Fi, of course. <laughs> but in reality, you know, that would probably end or at least, you know, slow down a lot of any kind of spiritual progression that I have because you have to be out into the world. Right. Because with, without, that abrasive, like you're saying, your Ashlar would stay imperfect. Yeah. You you need you have to have that abrasive to refine. Yeah, and, and also it helps to have some extra hands with chisels too. I mean some of you know, I I you know, some of my greatest memories are whenever we've been at a Scottish Rite reunion, you know, down in the basement or up on the roof or other unmentionable places and uh don't listen to this, Bob. And uh you know, and we, and we and we just share stuff with one another, and you know, work through things. It's you know, those are some of the most profound, some very profound experiences, and not necessarily have anything to do with meditation, but just being there together and facilitating each other's journey. Well, yeah, and that's that's what I was talking about earlier, with the connectedness that when you do tap into or uncover that um <clears throat> that divine in yourself and and the other guy does the same thing that it's drawn to each other uh because it is one thing and that's kind of what i wanted to bring up as the next point was meditation in the lodge room or rather the lodge room as a meditation what well, we kind of talked about that earlier whenever i was talking about ritual and i've mentioned this on another podcast that we forget the importance of the ritual that it is actually ritual. It is a meditative act. It is a way to set apart that space for the work that we're going to do, not just as brothers, but for ourselves. And I mean, even, I mean, and like I said, I know we've talked about this in a previous podcast. I mean, if you look at, I mean, ritual, (laughs) ritual magic, almost where you have the opening of lodge, which is, you know, cleansing the space and, you know, setting the space and also setting the intention of all the brothers present and that you're doing work. Um, it's not, you know, just the, 
not, I'm not going to beat this dead horse. It's not just the meeting to pay the bills and do business. I mean, it's Freemasonry is about inner work. And one of the things that I really appreciate about Veritas is we make no bones about it. We have a contemplative moment for every meeting. We have meditation, uh, education, and discussion every meeting. And that's the whole point of it is you create a ritual space. We actually have dedicated time for meditation within the tiled meeting. And then you have you know, some sort of facilitated education process as well. Even going back to the topic of meditating in lodge, you know, back what I was saying at the beginning of the podcast, uh, Guthrie's Academy of Reflection has the discursive uh, meditation where you look at a piece of ritual or pick a working tool. I mean, that's as simple as it can get. And, you know, we all have that available. We all know the working tool lectures. You know, you go to lodge and pick up a gavel or a 24-inch gauge, hold it in your hand, and just contemplate on it. Roll it around your hand. What does it mean? You know, and that's part of being an initiate because, you know, for a symbol is something that has a deeper meaning than what is normally just apparent at the beginning. So, you know, if, if, if you handed somebody a gavel and said, what is this? Well, it's a gavel, or it's a hammer, or 24-inch gauge. You hand that to a Freemason, they have a whole nother level of meaning to it because you've been initiated into that. You know what it means. Well, use that. I mean, use that as an actual tool for development. I mean, how many of us can rattle off the working tool lectures totally mindlessly, but how many people have really sat down and thought about, okay, divesting my time am i divest i mean dividing my time correctly am i divesting my mind and conscious of vices and superfluities well what the hell does that mean well have you sat down and actually thought about that do i have vices and hang-ups that are presenting or preventing me from reaching my full potential I mean, that's that's a very simple exercise to undertake and something we all have the tools for but very few people do it. I think that'd be something really, really, really helpful for uh, new brothers as they come in, as they're learning their lectures and learning the working tools. Besides just learning the language, actually work in some of those those meditations using the working tools. Well, even on the working tools, look at the tracing boards. You know, that's another thing that is just rife with symbolism. And, you know, in Oklahoma, we use slides. We don't even use real tracing boards. But that's something else. That's a visual that you can meditate on and, you know, not necessarily right or wrong way to do it. Just, you know, what do these symbols mean to you and how can you apply them? I mean, that's what meditation is all about is, you know, working your ashlar to discover your true inner self and inner potential inner divinity so whatever working tools that you can find i'd say use them whether it's a float tank or meditating on the gavel or whatever well i think that's a really good place to end this podcast good job jason you summed it up nicely now that we finally got a podcast in the can is that the term recorded i don't know it's been a while and i'd like to apologize not me personally, but on behalf of the Laudable Pursuit, we've run into uh, a lot of technical 
physical, metaphysical, all kinds of resistance, man. It's been crazy. Um, Matt moved across the country. Yeah, I moved to the Pacific Northwest. Me and my wife, we, uh, we've wanted to move up here for a while, and a chance opened up for us, so we jumped on it. Yeah, so it took a little while to get a couple of new pieces of equipment, figure out some technology, and get things back in order. But this went probably the smoothest one we've ever done as far as uh, not being interrupted by the universe goes. So I think we got something we can work with in the future. And please, please subscribe and look forward to new episodes coming soon. Thanks for listening. As always, you can send show ideas, questions, or comments to podcast at thelaudablepursuit.com. We encourage everyone to keep up with us on Facebook and Instagram. We publish articles one or two times a week on our website, thewaddlepursuit.com. As always, we welcome submissions of any kind, art, music, poetry, or prose. Submissions can be sent via email to the editor at editor at Thanks for listening.